steps in Charleston. They now can try their slipper and see if it fits at the big ball. These Tennessee State Buccaneers, they're dancing, boys. Fighter Mosquera, Perea lays it up. 1.4. Perea hits it. The pass is caught. Ready for the game winner. Wide left. Bucks win. Bucks is spotting for three. The place is going to erupt. Oh, Deuce Bellow. He's going to make Sports Center with an incredible. Jarvis Jones, the game winner, got it. Ball game. East Tennessee State's going to leave on another. They got him. If he catches it, it's over. Ball game. Touchdown, Jawan Stinson. 25 yards. J.J. German for the win. He got it. J.J. German and the Bucks have shocked the Bulldogs. And the sidekick. Who in the blue hell are you? <laughs> You're handsome. You have the perfect amount of scruff. And you still have no talent. It's Sandos and the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. trying to hustle up and get a few things done because as you can imagine anybody that's out of work even if you work remotely you're still behind on stuff and answering certain emails and uh, things uh, that happen when you're uh, a state employee because the forms by the way to fill out and we can go over this a little later in quarantine but just the forms to fill out for the university of the quarantine and how to mark time down and did I work remotely did I not did I get signatures I stated something on this so trying to get all that worked out and trying to figure out um, how to mark down the time properly uh, is uh, a little more taxing absolutely thrilling okay as your seat's down well what do you let's see show breakdown today right sure okay we're going to talk football in just a second Spit something all over the microphone you okay I don't know I'm losing control you're so excited up here you're frothing at the mouth yeah so we got to talk about your time in quarantine. Okay, so we'll in second that. number two, Sando's stories from quarantine. I hope you've come prepared because okay. I'm excited to hear some uh, rip-roaring tales of okay. how things went for those 10 or so days. Uh, we were going to do, and I know people are probably thinking at this point, the segment that you've been teasing for like four weeks doesn't even exist. You're just saying something new is coming so that we have something to look forward to. It actually does exist. It's not debuting today. I thought it was going to debut today, but I figured we had to do a special edition of Pros versus Jays. Okay. Since you're back, since you did not do two football games in a yeah. row, yeah. so this is going to be Pros versus Jays Robert Harper edition, and we've got a little bit of everything in that segment, segment number three, and that okay. full predictions recap. So I'm excited. It's going to be a lot of Sandos in quarantine. What happened? How did it happen? What was the deal on your end? How did things go here? And obviously in segment number one, the Bucks winning it. Yeah. And it was to be expected. First of all, Delaware State's travel schedule was out of control. Uh, they did not apparently try to look for hotels until two weeks out now. Smart. ETSU had clearly uh, communicated in February, I believe it was, like, hey, you probably need to book hotels now. And, um, yeah, we'll get on that. And then ten days before the game, 
Uh, yeah, so for the record, uh, ETSU, we book our hotels out uh, the second we get the schedule that has a time on it. And as soon as we get those, those are booked months in advance, like every team in America. That's how you book. So I have no idea where Delaware State, the Division One program, just do they normally? I, I had a lot of questions, but I didn't really want to talk to them about it. But a lot of questions. Is that how you normally book things? Because SEC, yes, because you don't get game times two weeks out, so that could change like arrival times and and do you stay an extra day? How's the charter flight? Or you, I get that, but at the one AA level, you pretty much have the schedule and the times by June. So worst case scenario, and even if you didn't have the exact time, I know ETSU communicated and said, hey, we normally play at night. In this, you know, September, we've always played at night. We'll play at night. Just a heads up. They ended up flying into Knoxville because you can't fly into Tri-Cities because, you know, the Bristol race are private jets and helicopters nonstop going back and forth, Bristol Motor Speedway and wherever these people are flying in from and flying back to. So they fly to Knoxville, rip buses, bus, eat. So that right there told you it was going to be a long day for Delaware State on the football field, I think, as well. It's amazing to me, and, you know, we don't talk a lot about the wise guys, but we do some. The line opened at 32-and-a-half. Wow. I, I just – and the over-under, 41-and-a-half. Wow. How do they know? How do they know? It is amazing to me because, of course, it ended up, now it dropped for whatever – it dropped to 29-and-a-half. So people are pounding the hornets. I like the <laughs> fluctuation, too, of lines at the FCS level. Oh, yes. you see some crazy stuff in terms of movement. I didn't see that line even open quite as I figured for whatever reason there may not be one, even though it was FCS versus FCS. And now apparently I've also heard that you can put action down on, like, NCAA volleyball now. So nothing should surprise me anymore. But that is amazing. And that's what I've always wondered about that. And, again, we probably yeah. should talk well, a whole lot about yeah, this on won't. an NCAA show whatever. But uh, who is handicapping these? That's what, I, that's what I'm understand. amazed. Is Matt Wilgham doing some business on the no side? Like, idea. who's the insider here? It was amazing how, how close it was. But basically, Saturday morning, um, now that gambling is more and more legal and accessible, it seems like Saturday morning you can you can find lines. Um, where before there was like one offshore site you really had to dig deep, and that one was always way. We used to laugh at those because, you know, a 30-point underdog would win all the time, and you're like, okay. Now, somebody's just throwing a dart. But anyways, um, Getting to the game, and I will say this, I was able to, uh, during the delay before the opening kick, I was able to make it to the parking lot of Lot 21 because everyone was pretty much gone, and I set up a perimeter uh, of about four parking spaces away from everybody, put a little line down, and people would walk to the edge, four parking spaces over, wave at me and talk to me, like, what do you do? I, I want to feel part of the game. The odd part was... Uh, because I didn't want to kill my car battery, so I didn't listen to the game live on the radio. I listened to it on the XSM app. And here's what I didn't factor in. The fireworks would go off about 20 seconds before I heard the touchdown call. So a little anticlimactic, but sure. yet still fun times, because I was like, man, what are we going to do in this? Oh, yeah, we scored. <laughs> before the ball could even be snapped. So that was kind of interesting. And then after the first half, I went home and listened to the rest of it and watched more of the second half than I did the first half. So I didn't actually – Watch the first half. I just listened to it. But this game played out. I mean, I think if you would have scripted, and we talked a little bit of how we thought things would happen. The only thing that didn't play out in the game as I thought it would was special teams for Delaware State, punting-wise, was much better than what 
they had been. Obviously, other special teams with the block extra point again, one score, you know, you are probably what they should have had. And then defensively, ETSU was able, to, you know, just to grind it out. I mean, you look at the rushing numbers for ETSU, I mean, 43 carries for 309 yards. I mean, you really can't ask you just the backs went down or went out. And so, um, you know, game one, you know, of course, I'm a huge Patriot fan, but they were on their third left tackle by the end of the game against the Dolphins. And so, uh, you know, when you only carry eight linemen on a game day for the NFL, it's tough. So all this experience and stuff I think will pay out for ETSU. And, you know, my long-term bold prediction was three, you know, two-score wins, you know, in league play. And we all kind of laugh because they've not had three in a season. And now the first three games, and granted, one of my – understands a little bit of lower division. Delaware State's not world beaters, but you throw in an SEC school, and very impressive start to the season for ETSU. Yeah, outscoring opponents 106-23, to 23, and I'm not going to talk a whole lot about the game itself in terms of what happened during it or how it unfolded because, quite honestly, it was really what we expected. And, and drama was over quickly. Yeah, I mean, even more so than UVA-wise a little bit, right? Like, at least UVA-wise – to their credit, for those first 10 minutes, you know, plays are pretty even. Then they made a mistake with throwing it to Tyree Robinson. Tyree gets it down to the three. You punch it in. And then from there, the floodgates kind of open. But uh, in terms of Delaware State, really from the get-go, it was pretty clear that this was a massive mismatch. And I don't like to denigrate other programs, obviously, but this is an ETSU podcast. And I think it's safe to say, having looked at a Division Two and Delaware State back-to-back weeks, that these two teams, at least in my opinion, maybe not physically, right, because Delaware State certainly did have some size. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but UVA-wise and Delaware State look to be about the same skill level to me. And that's kind of how the ultimately game unfolded in both cases was. It was, you know, a 30-plus point win in each case. And uh, what I think it was, I guess, 31 against UVA Wise and 32 against Delaware State. And uh, ETSU was able to do some of the same things uh, against each team. So it's a glorified non-Division one win just because Delaware State is where they are and have been for quite some time, really ever since Rod Milstead was on the team about 30 or so years ago. He wants to get that school back to being uh, where they were when he was around and Uh, Obviously, it's going to be a slow build if they are able to build at all. In terms of some other guys that we saw that we weren't able to see in the first few games of the season, whether it be at their position or at all, it was great to see Austin Lewis back at the fumble recovery. Obviously, Donovan Manuel missed the first half. He came in and, I mean, ho-hum, right? He just steps back in in the second half after not playing the first 30 minutes and has six tackles, tied for second on the team. Jared Folks back in the backfield with a sack. Uh, I think it's so fun to see a 26-year-old out there still being able to play the game he loves after all this time. And to see him um, not miss a beat was not surprising in any way. Um, look down the list, and I mean, Tyree Robinson got banged up in the second half against UVA-wise. He was back in. Uh, Blake Bockrath did miss the game. Came in Cody did miss the game. Um, so ETSU this is the incredible part to me, still isn't fully healthy. I mean, they're doing incredible things on the defensive side of the ball, giving up, what, I guess, three plus uh, 14 plus six is like 23, so they're giving up like eight points a game uh, over the three games. It was interesting to me to see, and this was foreshadowed a bit by Randy Sanders on the coaches' show on Wednesday night, but 
Trey Richburg on the defensive line, Jalen Frierson um, on the defensive line as well, uh, getting some playing time. Uh, and then you also had up front, uh, even seeing Jalen Porter play some nose tackle. I mean, he had obviously a massive day. He could dominate the game from anywhere. Four the sacks. recon package, he is your nose tackle on the recon package. I, I was not aware. I had never seen that from Randy Sanders and company. So the fact that he's playing nose tackle and picks up four sacks, and that's the most since football's been back, he obviously had a big day. Um, but a lot of things outside of just the result that played into Saturday night, and those were just a few for me. People returning from injury, Jalen Porter's big night, and people in new positions getting to show off what they've learned. Yeah, the one thing, you know, Jalen Porter was on the recon package last year, but he wasn't playing nose. And so I asked Coach Taylor, because that's my favorite package, uh, for a lot of reasons. I don't know why, yeah. But because that, that's the third down where they get all the rush guys and there's guys playing and he's always in this there's guys playing out of position by far but it's who can go get the quarterback so it's basically three quote defensive linemen because I think Zach West is the defensive end and he's you know an outside linebacker listed at like 210 and so he said coach Saylor you know when Jalen's at the nose guard you know, he's real great about hitting the center and then spinning to the opposite end of the gap and just nobody can block him. Like, our guys can't block him, so he's got to be pretty good at it. And, obviously, it showed in that game, but it showed all season. Um, Frierson loved Jalen. They just can't find a place for him. You know, he, he played some tight end uh, his first little uh, first year. They tried to move him to, like, a fullback H-back in the spring. Just didn't quite work out. I mean, honestly, Noah West and um, – uh, Nate Atkins and all of them just have a stranglehold on some of that position. Then when Juwan Martin came back, well, he's a true fullback, so what do you do with Frierson? So I like the fact that he's a big athletic kid, uh, played linebacker, running back, was a big-time running back in high school, so certainly an athlete. So if you can get him, um, you know, on the defensive line, on an edge, certainly, you know, we've heard a lot about Richburg and what they thought he could be and him just, you know, if you're not playing and coach says, hey, you'll move outside of the ball, yeah, I'm not playing. Put me anywhere. And so I like that um, ETSU has been creative uh, with that. And getting Austin Lewis back, you know, certainly helped. He had his presence felt, right, an early fumble recovery uh, in that contest. And so the depth on the defense, and not just this year, but building some of that, getting some of those guys on the field now is not only going to help ETSU as we get ready to start the stretch run, right, the eight straight conference games, a chance to win a championship, chance to go to the playoffs, but certainly some of these guys get an opportunity to shine in those positions as there's going to be a mass exodus from this defense at the end of this season. First 3-0 starts since 1999. That year, the team ended up 6-5. and Now, that's not to say that this year is going to end up like that. It's not to rain in the parade. Let's keep in mind when we go back to that year that ETSU also had to play three top 15 teams in their next four games after actually starting 4-0. 4-0, right. Yeah. Yep. And the league doesn't have that this year. I mean, you were around for those late 90s, early 2000s. Football was a lot different. I don't want to say it was necessarily a lot better, simply because I think we're comparing two completely different landscapes, right, in terms of conference reformation and realignment and everything, and FCS and FBS. And I think the minimizing gap that we have now and you can see it every week with FCS upsetting FBS teams, even Power 5 teams. Um, but it is a bit of a warning shot across the bow 
that you can't simply start 3-0, and go into conference play, and think every team is going to be Delaware State, UVA-wise, things are going to go smooth. Now, ETSU could go 500 in the league this year and still be one of just four teams since 1980 for ETSU to win seven or more games. And I wonder, and this is going to be a premature conversation of many premature conversations. We're probably going to have about the exact same topic and other topics over the next month and a half, two months. But do you think with ETSU's resume, in the, what I believe to be worst case scenario, that they would go, say, four and four in the league and get to seven wins? Because I I can't seem to, and I've tried to poke poke holes in this, right? I've tried to find a way. Not because I want this to happen, simply because you got to play pessimist when you're sitting here and trying to go through all scenarios and how the year could unfold. Would seven wins get ETSU into the playoffs in the worst-case scenario that they go 4-4 four and four in the league, at least my worst-case scenario? You look at the Vanderbilt win, and that's what makes me believe yes, but then you have an ID one and you have Delaware State. Does that even it out? It feels like the Vanderbilt win would hold more weight than – well, you Delaware do you do get more lies. credit in the point system there, and if you have a <coughs> FBS loss, it's, it's like a .5 extra to the calculation. So basically, a home wins like a .8, a road wins like 1.2, um, and then if you get a you know FBS, you know it's almost like a 1.8 or, or close to a two point in that calculation system they got. Maybe I don't know if Scott Carter's allowed to reveal that since he's on the committee one day. Maybe break that down for us but I do know it's weighed more I think the problem is the league has still had some not good non-conference losses Um, and I think obviously I mean Sanford losing at Martin is going to hurt Um, if Chat could have beat Kentucky it really would have bolstered everything in in the league as far as having two FBS wins Um, I think Wofford losing again to Kennesaw State. I think so. So there's been some league losses that I think are going to hurt. I think it's going to be hard. I think eight wins guarantees you, I think, a spot in the playoffs of the 24 teams. Um, unless ETSU were to lose to Western Carolina or somebody at the bottom that's a head scratcher. But if ETSU doesn't lose to a head scratcher and they lose to a top couple teams in the standings of the, the Southern Conference, um, you know, then I, you know, Chattanooga, Furman, ETSU kind of have a three-team fight for the championship, and ETSU sitting over with eight wins. Then I think ETSU is, is going to be in the playoffs. If they're at seven wins, they're going to have to play a, a, a hope and wish game and, and see what happens around FCS if they can get into that top twenty-four or not. It would be tougher. I'm not saying they couldn't do it, but it would certainly be tougher. Eight, I think, would guarantee them. Nine's a lock. You know, especially with a win over an SEC team. So I think they've got that going for them. It feels like the Vanderbilt win is going to outweigh to the positive what the Delaware State and UVA-Y's wins would bring in terms of the negative for your resume, at least in my mind, simply because it is SEC Power 5. What about you? Do you think there's any way that this start is a mirage? And I think I can find only one. And by mirage, I basically mean this team, I think to you and me right now, looks like the best since football has been back. Looks like the best, perhaps, since ETSU in the mid-90s, 96, 97, those years, 
Um, obviously, 96, 25 year anniversary. That's really cool that you know what they were able to do that year, double digit wins and going when you're only FCS playoff game. Um, really landmark type stuff. And it feels like this team can be another landmark team. The only way it feels like this non-conference season is not indicative of what's to come over the conference year is if, and I'm creating this alternate universe, which I, I don't think is going to happen, but let's say Vanderbilt loses out, even to Connecticut, who they've got in a few weeks. Um, and it turns out they're one of the worst Power Five teams during a single season in you know the history of Power Five or whatever. And Delaware State and UVA-wise proved to be, you know, in, Del- in Delaware State's case, uh, a bottom MEAC team, and UVA-wise proves to be a below-average to bad D2. And you look back and you say, wow, we really couldn't tell much from the non-conference. That's the one scenario in which I think it could be a barrage. But even if that's the case, ETSU has won so handily in these games, and they've been so dominating. I mean, I, I can't think of one single moment outside of maybe the first quarter against Vanderbilt that I was watching or listening to the game and saying, I'm not sure ETSU is the better team right now. Over 12 quarters of football. Every single other, I think, it's clear and obvious. Dominating even. Dominating. For 11 quarters. Here's the one thing I would – There's. you look at ETSU and where they have struggled over the last several years. One of them I'm going to point to is the red zone. And it's not been scoring in the red zone. It's scoring touchdowns. But this year so far, nine touchdowns and 14 trips to the red zone. And I think that's important because ETSU has been under 50% touchdown ratio almost every single year that football's been back. So they would like to have that in the 70s, just talking to Randy Sanders. I mean, certainly, you know, you had seven points as opposed to three points, right? That's a big difference. So nine touchdowns so far early this season. The other thing I would point to is, again, it's to defense. 24 nothing points off turnovers. ETSU's turned it over three times on offense and the defense is held every time and not giving up a point. I think that number is huge. And ETSU's for six turnovers, they've got 24 points off those turnovers. So that's a pretty good ratio is there. But I think the red zone is one of the biggest things for me of why they have lost so many of those close games in 2019, right? 2018, everything went their way. They were able to do it. 2019, just really struggled to score points. And the big reason was touchdowns. They just could not score touchdowns in the red zone. So I feel confident that those numbers and building that early, and yes, you've mentioned it, not necessarily world beaters trying to hold them out of the end zone in the red zone, but sometimes, you know, it's like a struggling hitter. You know, if you you manage to get one over the wall, all of a sudden, you know, they come in spurts. Well, I'm hoping touchdowns will come in spurts, and ETSU will be able to do that. Time of possession, ETSU's plus seven so far. I like the fact that when they wanted the ball control, they can. They've been able to take shots down the field this year. That's different from last year. The thing to devil's advocate, sort of as you've done, ETSU's not won at Sanford. That's the next game. That's the next step. ETSU has not won at Furman. That's a, you know, a road game coming up later this year. It's going to have huge um, impl- uh, impl- implications. Haven't been Wofford anywhere. Haven't been Wofford anywhere. They have not won at Chattanooga. That'll be another place. So there's three places on the road they haven't won, and they've never beaten Wofford. So you look at those things. I'll tell you, here's another one, and, and you know, this is going to bring a chuckle to a lot of people, but 
ETSU struggles at Western Carolina. I don't care how good the team is. If you go through the history of the history books and look at all the records and look at some of the great teams and ETSU having, you know, playoff-type teams, and it ended in Cullowhee because they couldn't get past the Catamounts in Cullowhee. It is one of those weird places that ETSU has struggled. I think they have more wins at Furman than they do at West Carolina. Like, it's very odd if you, if you look at the history books there. So, Devil's Advocate, yes, there there are things ahead of them. Now, this is by far the best defense since the 96-97 era. By far. I mean, statistically, eyeball test, whatever you want to do. Like, they um, have everything going. They are playing on such a high level if the defense stays healthy, and they continue to, uh, the popular term, just do your job, then I think ETSU will be able to handle it. Because right now it looks like the offense, which is averaging 35 points a game, I don't think they'll sustain that in league play. But what have we said? I, I say it all the time on the radio broadcast. If you can just guarantee 24 points or more, I think ETSU is going to win every game. You know? Is there the rare they get in a shootout with somebody? Yeah. I mean, it's quite possible. I mean, the way Sanford plays and gives up points, I mean, they jumped out on Western Carolina. I want to say it was almost like 21-3, and all of a sudden they're in a shootout at the end of the game. You know, they give up 40-some points to UT Martin. So they're, they can score, but they're going to give up points. And so I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how the first couple, you know, next couple games happen for ETSU. I think certainly – Going to Sanford, a place they haven't won, they can get that win, right? Then I think Citadel's up next at home, able, you know, hopefully to beat a, a, a hapless – I don't know what's going on with the Bulldogs, but Brent Thompson's got to be real concerned about if he's going to be there the next year. And then you get Wofford, and Josh Conklin's got to be real concerned what's going to happen to him too. But So ETSU, you get Sanford win, you got two home games, and if you could get to 6-0, and the confidence, the, the just the energy around everything – is going to be picked up. Um, and so I think this next game, and I know a coach would say it's the most important game because it's the next game, but it's an important game because you're not one there. And you didn't beat Liam Welch last year, right? You beat Chris Oladokun, who's clearly proven in a legitimate football system, can win games as opposed to whatever Hatcher's running. But that's a that's an offense that's given ETSU trouble. Yes, they've beaten Sanford a couple times, but yes, they've also been ran out of the building down there as well. So probably should have won two years ago. Uh, had a drop pass. I think Trey Mitchell threw a ball into the driving rain and Keith Coffey diving, mind you, but it hit him in the hands and he couldn't hang on to it. And ETSU ended up not scoring on that drive. But if that scores, ETSU takes the lead with a couple minutes left to go in the game and you don't know what happened. So anyways, it, we, we've given plus and negatives. Um, I think we're both leaning towards the positive, but it's also three games where you've played teams where we've just admitted we're far superior than how does it play when you get in league play. And honestly, league play is different because everybody knows everybody, you know. And so there are certain matchups in the league that give me a little bit of pause, and one of them would be this next game against Sanford. It's not to devalue the Vanderbilt win because obviously we understand right when everything happened, you won the game, we were the first ones to say, there's no devaluing this win. It doesn't matter if it's Vanderbilt. It doesn't matter if it's any Power 5 program across the board from 1 to 65 or however many there are. Um, it's a phenomenal win, specifically the way you got it. Just in looking at how things could go to the positive and the negative, I think that's why you know we're 
coming at it from the position that we are right now. It is a great win. Vanderbilt should be, has every reason to be, miles better than the Bucks, and the Bucks were miles better than Vanderbilt in that game. It is a huge win, and there should be optimism everywhere just looking for how things could go the other way, simply to not be the overly optimistic, and then once you're halfway through league season and you're sitting there 2-2, two and two, you're not scratching your head. There are ways that this can get even better. There are ways that these first three games could be misnomers, and we hope that's not the case. I'll say this about the game on Saturday. It was nice to see the Bucks play a clean game, four penalties, 30 yards, after 19 penalties the first two games, and also third downs. I think it was 8 for 11 that the Bucks ended up going, and they were 10 for 28 entering the game. So those areas which have been struggles for ATSC since football has been back, uh, obviously phenomenal. I've got a couple bigger topics, but we're going to have to save them because we're obviously rambling and rambling as we do. But the skill positions right now are simply incredible for ETSU on offense and maybe Thursday or at some point during the season we can talk about that because I've been extremely impressed after being at least the receiver position pretty underwhelmed for the first six seasons. <laughs> Fair. Uh, all right, well, let's step aside for a time. When we come back, quarantine Sanders. Hard turn. 90 degrees, 180 degrees. Maybe you're turning 180 degrees. Spinning in circles, 360 degrees your entire time in quarantine. I suppose I'm excited to find out. Well, you're spinning my head right now. We'll step aside for a time on this is Sanders and Sidekick. I love Air Sports Network. You'd be amazed to learn what one Tennessee lottery ticket can lead to. For you, it could be lucky. But for others, it could open the door to so much more. With more than $6 billion raised for education, the Tennessee Lottery has proudly funded over 1.5 million scholarships and grants. That means, on average, more than 130,000 Tennesseans every year continue their education just because you played. The Tennessee Education Lottery, game-changing, education-benefiting fun. Saturday to sit in a parking lot again by myself, um, and people wave at me and make jokes, and you know it was good. And I saw human beings, but the good thing about my house is that there is a we have the double master in the house, if you will. So one is the guest suite, if you will, that's normally occupied by Robert Harper more times than not, whether it's a, a weekend uh, for an ETSU football game or a member guest tournament or his wife brings the kids, or, or whatever it is. Um, so I had my own room that had, you know, actually had a Whirlpool bathtub, right? Yeah, kid took a big bubble bath. Wow. Uh, my own shower, own bathroom, all that. And it's also the closest door to the garage, so I could also kind of exit out of the house without going into the house. So That's like more of a COVID froth in that bath than a bubble bath. <laughs> I didn't take a bubble bath, uh, <laughs> but... I should have. I should have listened to the game, lit some candles, and tweeted that out. That's probably what I should have done oh, uh, instead man. of sitting outside. Would you, oh, would you have loved that? Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. My, uh, my head is spinning now. Yeah. 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 So um, I just hope the, uh, the uh, bubbles are in the right spot, right? <laughs> <laughs> Shoulders up, please. Uh, so 
the thing Friday when it kind of hit, I'm like, all right, so I leave work. And, and, what did, and I'd encourage people because I thought I just had a sinus. My wife had kind of a sinus cold a couple weeks previous. She got tested, was negative. I had what I felt like was just a little sinus cold, a little sinus pressure, headache, and just thought, you know what, I need to be safe. Let's be smart about it. We got testing downstairs. You know, I, last year I was testing three times a week anyway, so that doesn't bother me to get tested. Got tested Friday. Brian Johnson did it, was positive. He calls the head trainer, Brett Lewis. Brett comes and does a secondary test, and both of them are positive. I'm like, Don, you know, what? You know, I'm like, well, this isn't right. And they're like, well, it doesn't matter because you're showing symptoms. You've got two of them, so you need to leave immediately. And so I had called them that morning before I came in the office, and uh, so immediately headed home and went into scramble mode of, of letting everybody know and then trying to get stuff covered. Now, the good news is I had already set up the gear, um, and so we're having two home games, so the gear for the radio crew is ready to go. And the fun part is, so I get home. My wife has already put a bag in the guest bedroom with T-shirts, underwear, shorts, socks, flip-flops, and shoes. And so Very then I have to send a message. Well, I need all of, like my toiletries, right? I need I need that. So then she brings down the toiletries, and then from the other side of the door, she's like, "Okay, I'm going to go to the grocery store. I've got to, uh, I've got the, got to pull the kids out because they were in direct contact, and go get them out of school. So go get the kids, does all that. Then at lunch, this is how I knew things it was going to be a turn. There was a knock on the door, and I hear her yell, "Count to five seconds. Open the door. Your lunch is ready." <laughs> so I open the door, and there's a plate of food with the drink on the ground and so pick it up go in eat don't think anything about it was it a metal tray it was not a metal no. tray um kind of the vibe i'm getting some some sometimes it uh it did have uh, an old school sort of yeah it did have some there was at one time we did have a section tray like a little kid lunch tray oh, yeah God. i did have one of those um and then later that day i was like hey i've set you a chair out in the yard you can go sit out in the yard and you know, uh, the kids won't be outside. So then I got yard time, right? So that was there the first day. Then the next morning, I'm like, hey, I don't have a TV in the guest bedroom. And I'm like, you know, could you could you get me a TV? And she said, well, her boss, the, the city manager, Pete Peterson, is like, you know, I'll go buy him a TV. And she's like, you will not buy him a TV. He's fine. So I asked for a TV, and you know what I got? We've already talked about it, but you know what I got? A book, Mike Gallagher, a book. When's the last time? You opened a book and read it. At least a decade. Okay. So I was confused because, you know, words weren't coming out of it, right? It wasn't an audible book or whatever you can get. There, there's no pictures. Very small print. It's 440-some pages. So. What was the book? It's a John Grisham. Uh, you think I'd remember the title. I can tell you the whole story. <laughs> I don't remember the title. I can tell you the whole story. I read it. I did read, read it. the entire book I and did. don't remember the title. That's I don't book. remember the title. Oh, wow. But uh, if you, uh, I will say this, uh, Jake Bergantz, who was the uh, lawyer in Time to Kill, makes a comeback in this book for uh, another murder to try to, this time a 16-year-old boy had killed a police officer. So there was, uh, uh, anyways, lots of, lots of stuff about the book. I wish I could remember. I, the title will come to me in a minute. But I uh, did read it. 447 pages. I know you don't believe me, but I did read it. So then I'm sitting there, and this is Saturday morning. I have no TV. I have a book. So now I'm trying to get my phone logged in so I can watch some sort of sports. So I'm watching on this small iPhone sports. And then Saturday in the afternoon, um, there was a card. I had a card table, 
an old school radio and a chair, and I was able to hook up the radio with the antenna so that I could listen to the game and sit outside by myself. Uh, I did get to eat dinner outside. It was the only dinner I had outside, so that was there. Sounds lovely. Sunday, I had Brian Johnston bring me a laptop, so at least I could watch on a laptop. And then I got my daughter to bring her, she has a TV DVD combo player to bring it there. And then I found in that room, believe it or not, I found an HDMI cable uh, in a closet, which was a great find by me. So then I could hook the laptop into the TV, and then I'm watching regular TV. So now now things are picking up a bit. About 48 hours in? Is that oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. 48 hours in, I can finally Sunday, I can watch NFL. Long 48 hours. Right so here's, here's uh, Monday takes a turn. It was like. I was like, hey, I think I'm going to go outside. She goes, okay, wait, let the kids play because they got to get back on their Zooms for their classes. So they get back on Google Meet, Zoom, whatever they're using at uh, the John City Public School System. And then, and then this is when I felt like I was on work release because I went outside, and beside my chair there was a shovel, there were some clippers, and a hacksaw, there was some wood, there was some instructions. Cut some limbs down. I need a frame made out of wood here. You need to uh, get the weeds out of the yard. I mean, it was like a two-and-a-half-hour work release. Like, Was the warden out there with you? She was not. Uh, was not. So I did negotiate an apple pie for that. So she, she didn't make a homemade apple pie while I'm out there doing the, the work release. Um, but You don't get that in the clinks. No. At some point in time, it was fun because she had – two important meetings so the kids had to play down the hill and Mike's been in my house but uh, my backyard there's an upper level where I sit on a chair and down the hill is sort of where the basketball goal is the trampoline the play set so the kids would run up to a certain area and just yell hi dad and wave from like 15 feet away (laughs) and then run back down the hill and play so I was able to um, do that and then my favorite part uh my daughter had trouble with some homework. Again, my wife had to go to some meetings, so I actually had to set up a Zoom <laughs> with her from inside the house, share the screen so I could see what she was working on, wow. and then we worked on her homework together. Uh, and so It's a new era we're living in, isn't it? it, uh, it oh, it was interesting, uh, trying to read a book, and, and, of course, then, you know, she can just – my favorite part is, hey, Dad, I'm going to go grab something to drink, and it's 20 minutes – Later, I'm yelling at the Zoom thing, like, where have you gone? Like, <laughs> just not, of course, I can't go get her. No. Can't do anything. Genius plan there. I was going to say, which has to feel great for her. Liberated, I'm sure. So. Uh, she holds all the cars in that situation. It, it was uh, it was interesting. Um, you know, sleeping down in that room um, was great because it's the coldest room in the house. I don't know how you feel about sleeping in cold, but it's the coldest room in the house, so that, that was fine. But uh, eventually, eventually, I got out, but. The three square a day, no snacks. One time I asked for a snack. You know how you, you get, like, when you go to a restaurant and they give you the small cup of, like, salad dressing? It's, a, it's got a little lid on it. It's just a little small cup. A little ramekin. Maybe, like, a two-ounce sure. thing. There were One of those had about eight cashews in it. That was my only snack for the time. So, Let's see. Do you look slimmer? I'm trying to – you kind of do a little bit. I'll say this. One time I lost eight pounds, but what I ate yesterday Uh, probably made up for it because I was out of quarantine. I went and – I don't even know where we picked up breakfast at, but I got breakfast. uh, Then I went and got uh, a couple of pizzas, right, hammered some pizzas. Then uh, there was some leftover barbecue. So I had some leftover barbecue, and there was some leftover Kentucky Fried Chicken from where uh, Sonny went tailgating. 
with the kids. So I will say this too, ETSU, they have a, a fund set up for uh, employees that do get COVID in their families. They did provide a meal. Uh, and it was, you know, not a sponsor this year, but a longtime sponsor of the firehouse. And I just want to say thank you to them and Jeremy Ross and Tish. They were able to drop off the food and have that. So that that was uh, that was good to have. I had one visitor on Friday. It was one person visited. Uh, Brian Johnson. He he brought me uh, lunch and we sat outside, very far apart, and talked. But um, tough to visit when you've got COVID. That's that's clever though that he did that in terms of the spacing and, and he's. Got a deep medical background, oh, yes. so he is obviously very aware of what does and what does not work in that situation. So that must have been nice. But you got the yard work, the homework, metal trays of food, and a book, mm-hmm. basically. For no TV there for a couple days. A couple days, wow. Was there any point during this time where you sat back and said, I might not make it? Yes. Not because of COVID, just because of the mental strain that was being put on you. Very, very early, especially with no TV, yes, because there's a lot of sitting there alone. Even, honestly, when I started to feel better on Monday, Tuesday I felt about 100%. Wednesday I know I was 100%. Sitting there and talking to other people that had COVID, they had basically told me, like, there'll be a point where you feel great, and then you've got to sit there for four or five days and do nothing, and it will that will wear on you more than anything. Yeah. And it did. It just sitting there. And I remember wearing out Brett Lewis and, and Brian Johnson about, you know, hey, I feel great to do all this. Maybe I can take a couple tests Saturday and do the game. And they're like, eh, you know, and they kept you – know, for a while there, they're like, okay, we'll look into that. Yeah, maybe, maybe, you know. <laughs> right. And, you know, just to shut me up because I was wearing them out. And then Saturday morning, they're like, nah, you know, you still could be shedding. There's a bunch of stuff. You know, you're going to be in an enclosed space. It's not like if you were broadcasting baseball and they're like, hey, they're going to put a table outside and you could rope off an area. You know, and I'm like, well, maybe I'll use the wireless mic. I'll go on the roof. And they're like, okay. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking of everything. And they're like, all right, no, here's the deal. You you get out Sunday, we'll see you Monday. Like, that that's the deal. You're not going to do it. So it drove me crazy. Missing games, and I talk, we talked about this last podcast, missing games. And it's, I say what's weird is it's the same time frame every year. I, every I, year. It's incredible. I almost missed the first football game back because – the Twins were going to be uh, induced that day. Now, they came a week early. And I, I was talking to Ginger Carter, who is our OBGYN, and her husband's the head football coach at Science Hill. I was like, Ginger, you can't get me fired and divorced on the same day. Like, football's back 2015. Like, like you've got to do this a day early, day later, something. Luckily, the boys took care of it and came a day early, so I didn't miss that. Then the next weekend is when my wife had the emergency surgery, yeah. and so I had to miss the Kennesaw State the next year. Then the next year, same weekend, unfortunately, my mom passed away, so I had to miss that game. And then two years after that, Sonny had blew out her knee, and I didn't miss a game, but I had to miss a lot of work leading up to that game because, again, she had the the synthetic tendon put in her knee. And then this year, I thought I had avoided it, um, although my daughter had an ankle injury and was walking in a boot, but that wasn't going to stop me from doing the game. And then, bam, COVID hits. And it's just incredible. I was laughing with it with Mike White about, like, I just can't start the season without something happening and i got to miss a game. And then on top of that, two games. Missed two games. And it's one thing, okay, you got a surgery, your mom passed. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, like, okay, you can, you know, make sense you're missing games, you get other stuff. It's another thing when you feel 100% healthy and you're sitting out and you just listen. And, um, you know, all I can say is, uh, luckily, Robert's been a good buddy of mine and been doing it for a while, and we are similar 
in a lot of our style, different but similar, in a lot of our styles and techniques. He doesn't quite get the uh, the jaygasms, as it's been uh, dubbed on Twitter, uh, as I get. I lose my mind a lot. But he also isn't an alum. But I've heard him do martial games and call uh, Campbell and North Florida game winners before. And I assure you, he can get there. He can, he can hit that. So, But uh, having the system put in place where – you know, the crew's been together a long time. I felt like, you know, it didn't miss, didn't miss too much of a beat. And then next week would be our fourth straight game, by the way, that somebody's going to miss the broadcast. I'm guessing this one's Wiljum. This one is Wiljum. So if we go 4-0, here's my question to you before we end this segment. If we go 4-0, do I mandate that somebody has to miss a broadcast every week to continue the win streak? Could it be Don Hellman? I, I think it is going to be Don. I think Robert's already told Don because Robert has to miss two in October. So, oh, wow. so he's got his on the on the books on when he's going to miss. So I think he's already told Don, like, this next one's got to be you. So that way, you know, when he misses in October, it'd be great. Oh, I think this is an excellent transition to our uh, pros versus Jays we got coming up. We got Robert? Yeah. All right. We'll do pros versus Jays right for this time out. Santa sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead investing in our community today and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero emission electric vehicles, harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power here for you. Pros. Buckle up for Kobe. Kobe Bryant just sucked the Germany. In your life have you seen anything like that? In the deep left center from Mitchell, and we'll see you tomorrow night. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. In a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. Edmonds hit 42 home runs during the regular season. And we are going to Game 7 in the National League Championship Series. The band is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. He's going to be out of the band. The Bears have won. The Bears have won. Versus Jays. I need a shower. scene in Johnson City and ETSU, and it's coming at a time where we can build and build and build and build to the ultimate moment where we've got that thing back in Johnson City. I'm going to leave it at that because I want there to be a little bit of mystery leading up to that segment. Whenever it does debut, I believe it's going to be Thursday because Mystery Guest Summer Series, unless I'm able to pull a rabbit out of my hat, is over. Three guests... It was a noteworthy summer. AJ Merriweather, Joe Hughley, Austin Herrick. I mean, that's that's a great trio. Hopefully, can figure out the fourth guest. If not, Thursday will be the debut of that segment. But in pros versus Jays, obviously, we usually grab calls from you and then compare them to 
Hey, Pro, we did this literally like once a week, every week, for the entire first year of the show, when we were doing five days a week, which, by the way, was extremely time-consuming. There were, there were Monday mornings I come in, and I did not know what to go with. And then I had to look through the archives and try and figure out a call that made sense to have you on that was comparable to a pro call and so on and so forth. I know people don't really care about the optics of it behind the scenes, but it was incredibly difficult to find every week simply because you run out of narratives and themes at some point. And during football season, you only call one game. Basketball, a little bit easier because you get two or three, but in football season, just one. Well, you were not able to call the last two weeks of games, and this is the longest stretch, I believe, the longest stretch that you would have been out in your entire time here. Is that right? Second. Second. This is the this is the second longest. The first longest, which um, I like you soft toss that for me. I missed 11 months and 28 days. Sure. Non-Iraq. This is the longest. Right. I was not counting that. I'm because that's a little bit different. <laughs> okay. I'll just double check. I, I yes. believe it's a little bit different. You experience both things. It seems a little bit different yes. to me. Yes. Um, this is the longest period. Uh, uh, can yes. we say longest unexpected absence? Right. Well, I mean, I guess that's kind of unexpected the, too. Actually, the the longest absence of me actually being in town. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Staying local. Right. Not being halfway around the world. Uh, so, this is a once-in-a-lifetime chance to be able to hear your thoughts about a multi-week performance of someone being fill-in voice of the Bucks, And I think it's perfect because you and Robert Harper, obviously, as I mentioned last segment, go way back. Um, you know each other's work very well. There's nothing to compare against for you in these last two weeks. Really, this is more of a Jay's critique pros, in this case, Robert playing the pro. So I've got the, I think, six, Ooh, the six okay. calls from the two weeks that I feel represent the entire body of work that he put forth pretty well. Also have one at the end that is completely unrelated to this, but we have to play it because it was just too good from yesterday. Okay. But week one, uh, it was Jacob Saylor's heavy, and so with Jacob Saylor's winning the Southern Conference Offensive Player of the Week, we figured in we'd mix in the two touchdowns from Jacob Saylor. And here's the throw, a blitz coming. They're going to get it off on the screen pass, and Saylor's going to have the first down and a whole bunch more across midfield of the 40. Down to the 30, down the near sideline, and Sailors on third down and 11 is going to take it all the way in for a touchdown. That's the 64-yard screen pass to Sailors. That was kind of the preeminent moment for him that week, the landmark anchor moment that I think solidified his case for Southern Conference Offensive Player of the Week. Robert Harper calls it down the sideline, got pretty excited. I was pretty excited about the level of excitement. At the very end of the play, maybe takes a little bit of a dive in terms of the energy, but... Uh, thought it was pretty solid call. Yes, yeah, like a seven. You know, I thought the build up and going down the sideline, he, he had a stride. I thought he was going to the pause and then the punctuation. But it was kind of how the game went. It was like a ho-hum. Yeah, he scored. So like a seven. I mean, I think the build up, the setup, I mean, just closing my eyes while I'm listening to this and can see him, you know, paint the picture of the screen and the blocking and down the near sideline, all that stuff. Uh, but a solid, solid first call. And another turn, another handoff. Sailors, big space out to the left at the 10 and the 5, and he dives towards the pylon, and he is in. Touchdown, Buccaneers. On that call, that was the second touchdown from Jacob.
Jacob Saylor, sounded like he got hung up trying to find a different word than whatever he had used to describe the opening that Jacob Saylor's had on that 15-yard touchdown run, and that kind of tripped him up and was able to get it back on track. Dives for the pylon, touchdown, Jacob Saylor. So early there were some bumps, but he did save it at the end. Yeah, and I think I think the one thing that helped there was he was able to build the drama because you're waiting on the official, right? Like he clearly – I did see that play. So he knocks the pylon down, and so you're like, okay, is the ref looking for, you know, did he see him touch out of bounds before he got it? Was his knee down? They're going to mark him short. You're waiting. And then, of course, the referee kind of turns to look for help on who's watching the sideline, right, the line judge or side judge, whichever one you're on. And then once he got the nod, no, he's clear, then you get the touchdown call. So I thought that kind of helped. There was the fact he was able to add a little bit of the drama. And it'll be right out third and three to throw out of the shotgun. Play action, going to throw the ball down the field. One-on-one action, and flags will fly. And he caught it. Did he catch it anyways? Yeah. He did. Huzzy caught it with one hand at the 10. So this is important because Will Huzzy has had a huge opening to the season. That was the left-handed catch deep down the field against UVA Wise where flags came in. And I'll sympathize with him here. Don Hellman comes in, helps him out if that's what you want to call what Don provides. The Don? Help. Yeah. He, gives he the got Don. Don. Yeah, he, he got Doninated. But uh, jumps in, helps him out. Uh, Robert was focused on the flag. There was a lot going on in that play. From our vantage point, Will Huzzy catches it with the ball in his left hand, and his left hand is closest to the sideline opposite of the press box. And so it was very difficult to see if it was a catch or not especially when the flag comes out and you see these only got one hand, you're not assuming he's going to catch the ball. So that very difficult to maneuver around does get excited after Don confirms. And then, of course, Robert sees the ref come in, mark it there. Oh, wow, it's a catch. Gets excited because it was an incredible snag by Will Huzzy, one of many he's had in the beginning of the season. Um, a winding road, that call, and a difficult one, I think, to uh, find a way to get to the end to. I like the surprise of, like, yes, he caught it. Like, those, those to me are the best calls because, you know, you're almost like, oh, okay, there's a flag, it's going to be incomplete, and all of a sudden you just like, you know, kind of like the he did what, right? The One of those famous calls. Antonio Al, Freeman, yeah. Yeah, uh, Al Michaels, Michaels yeah. right? Yeah, so it's one of those kind of situations. So, to me, those genuine moments where people are shocked, you know, you know like you can't see it coming type play, and so I like those calls, and – Yes, I've, I've been hung up and kind of asked, almost asked, like, whoa, what's going on? And then somebody jump in. More times than not, Don. Don is all over. I'll give Don that. And so, it, you know, I, I remember the safety at Furman, too. I'm like, oh, wait, wait, wait. You know, he got tackled. Oh, is he in the end zone? And then you're kind of waiting for the referee. And then they get the yes. <laughs> yes, he did. So, um, Welcome, welcome to the Buccaneer Sports Network, Robert, I'd say, when you get Don. So that's all we have on game one. What did you think of Game 1's performance? Robert had about 36 hours to prepare. You call him that Friday morning. Very different than the situation you walked into this past Saturday. So there's Game 1. Your thoughts? Yeah, Game 1, I think it took him, and I think he would admit this, it took him about half a quarter, a quarter to get in a good stride. And when you haven't done play-by-play for right now, he's done some TV uh, football recently, but he's not done radio. And so I think just getting into the flow of the actual action, getting the – formations, getting stuff set, getting a bunch of stuff. And, of course, then it's UVA Wise who was going as fast as humanly possible, especially with the first possession. You know, you got to get a flow. So I think given everything that he had to learn, and there's a lot of things in our network that we do um, 
that we don't have somebody handing you cue cards and things like other networks that I think, you know, I thought a pretty solid performance. You know, he didn't have his own spotting boards, didn't have a bunch of stuff that he had been prepared. So game one, you know, I, I thought all things considered, he was really solid. Week two was a lot about Quay Hall. Here he goes, 45-40, 35-30. They're going to try to run him down from behind. 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Quay Holmes. He takes it in from 62 yards away. And the Bucks have now blown this thing open on 37-6. So that's the second touchdown from Holmes, I believe, that day. It was the biggest moment, obviously, the second one, because that was the last score of the day. The 64 yards ended up being, he said, 62 I messed up yards a few times on long plays on Saturday, so I'm not going to critique Robert on that. That was, to me, the most disappointing of his calls because that was a huge, long, intrepid run down the field that I think was a, or will be, proved to be, one of Quay Holmes' biggest moments of his career in terms of individual performance, individual plays, simply because right now it's the longest touchdown run of his career. Now, obviously, the game was very out of hand, and broadcasters approach this differently, right? Like, I, I try to take each play as its own moment with some reservations on if a game is way out of hand, and you have to capture the fact that, wow, that was really cool, but, you know, it doesn't really matter the grand scheme of things. I tend to favor the moment over the game situation. So if it's a 64-yard touchdown run, I'm going to mark out. Because that's a big moment for Gway Holmes. Robert takes the more reserved approach there, and on the 64-yard touchdown run, uh, keeps it in about third gear. He uh, that was more excited than he did any of the sailors, though. Like, you think so? I uh, thought the screen pass is a bit more exciting. Uh, well, at least the touchdown part of it. Sure, that's true. The touchdown part of it was uh, there again. I think that's where a little bit of the, the styles may be different. Second thing is, again, even though he's he, – listen, uh, he ran it on the field and actually did the jumping back thing with Tyree Robinson after the interception to end the game at VMI. So it's not like he's an all-in guy. I mean, he's an all-in <laughs> guy now. Okay, so he's a, he's a huge – but I still think it's just different, you know, when you've been the lead and you do whatever. I think maybe he's also wanting to be a little reserve and not uh, what I do. That's what I would go with. Here's the – Big moment. Other than that, I'd say this is probably the bigger moment in the grand scheme of things, obviously. Uh, the 64-yard touchdown run was big, but when it comes to Quay Holmes and what he's been able to accomplish over his entire career, um, goodness, I'm not sure there was a bigger moment than that. Second down to seven. They'll turn, hand off Holmes. Holmes is now second all-time at ETSU rushing as he gets inside the 15 and down to the 12. And so with that carry of six yards, he now passes Brian Edwards. Searching and doing and keeping up and and it flows off the tongue that he had been, you know, he was ready the previous game just quite didn't get there. Quay only needed like nine yards or something in this game, so it, it was much more fresh, ready to go. But he was sitting, waiting, and knew the moment, and then I thought properly captured the moment as well. 
And finally, uh, this is maybe my favorite that we're going to hear. They're going to take delayed handoff left side. Wilkerson put the ball on the turf for the Bucks and picked it up. So the Bucks forced a turnover as Colton Lakes, so excuse me. Austin Lewis with the fumble recovery. Welcome back to the sidelines for Austin Lewis. Big turtle for the for the Bucks, and they're in the moving business here, Robert. Welcome back to Santa's the sidekick, Kevin Brown. Let's hear that one again. They're going to take delayed handoff left side. Wilkerson put the ball on the turf for the Bucks and picked it up. So the Bucks forced a turnover as Colton Lakes, so excuse me. Austin Lewis with the fumble recovery. Welcome back to the sidelines for Austin Lewis. Big turtle for the for the Bucks, and they're in the moving business here, Robert. I don't know what that was from Kevin Brown. He's trying to provide help to Robert because Robert misidentifies the player. It's Austin Lewis. Robert says, Colton Lakes, excuse me. Kevin gives him a couple seconds, does not know Robert at this point, who it is still, so Kevin's like, all right, let me help my guy out. Uh, the Bucks are in the moving business. Uh, I don't know what the moving business is. Um, and welcome back to the sidelines, I think he said. But I think that Austin's actually on the field for the first time. I, I talked to Kevin Brown about this before, and he was just like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I just, you know, I sounded like a buffoon. I, I think Kevin's heart was in the right spot. And uh, unfortunately, his energy level is always there. It is. It his is, energy level was spectacular. The words did not match the energy or what he was going for, I think. And he said, you know, I was going to say something else, and then I realized halfway through that I shouldn't say that, and so then I just kind of stumbled the rest of the way through it. So there's a lot to unpack in that call. Please do unpack it for us. So there was one other time, too. There was when uh, Haynes Eller came into quarterback. And in fairness, they had him still listed as number seven, I think. They did. Right. No, they did. I, and I was lucky because I was able to tap on the glass right next to me as the SID for football, David Fox. I tap on the glass, I'm like, what is going on? And David Fox then later explains, oh, last night he changed to number 13. And that's not something I knew. I don't think it's something Robert knew. So he wore 13 at Vanderbilt. The only reason I knew, and I was able to text the crew, radio crew pretty immediately, um, was because he held – on the field goals and extra points at Vanderbilt and wore 13. So when he said Got 13 it. is quarterback and he's not here or they whoever was wearing 13 are like, I don't think that's the quarterback. I was able to text pretty immediately to them and say, hey, that that's Haynes Eller. Which is funny because that's more information than I had because David Fox told me it was like the night before. Hmm. Well, I, game. well, but again, you dress more at home than you do on the road. True. And so there were more guys dressed and so, you know, the third string quarterback field goal holder probably doesn't hold a whole lot of cards when what number do you wear so he was able to get in the game so there was that then I think uh, Robert in the first game was really struggling with math trying to figure out how many uh, yards Quay Holmes had and at some point just said well I've, I've at least kept that tradition going in the booth that Jay sucks at math and so do I and then I thought maybe you'd pull the clip where he went into an awkward description of Bryson Irby's thighs. Um, Ooh, which I can't was, believe I missed that. Which was, uh, they were talking about how much he weighed and s- something another. And he said, well, it's really all in his uh, thighs and the waist down and legs. And I remember Wilson just saying, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Robert's trying to make us safe. And so there, I was hoping we were going to get a couple of those in there. But uh, as far as that goes, Austin Lewis hadn't played, and we have all been waiting. And here's the one thing I see where Robert is a little bit handicapped still on the broadcast, where he doesn't live here. He lives in Charlotte. 
And so, like, Matt Wilson will come to a practice now and again or will do whatever. Robert will call me, and I try to fill him in on the whole week. We spend about 30 minutes talking, just filling him in on stuff so he gets ready for sidelines. We spent about an hour talking about all this. I told him I thought Austin Lewis would play a game that. But still, you haven't seen a guy play before. And, you know, Lakes and Lewis are both, you know, one's, I think, 6'6", one's 6'7". So, I mean, you certainly could get in the way. Now, 54 or 69, they're diving in a pile. People are coming out. Who who had the ball? Who didn't? Who's celebrating? I mean, there's a lot of things that came in there. I do like that the same. And, and Robert has, you know, saved me before. And Don, when he's on the sideline or whoever, has been able to make a save when you're like, ah, I'm not sure. Because sometimes, as you know, as a play-by-play guy, you're so focused on some of the other things. Yeah. There is a, a time where, like, a scrum and a ball comes out and somebody comes out celebrating. You're like, well, that's the guy who had to get it. And then there's just a guy celebrating, but the guy actually has the ball still on the ground. So I've misidentified before. So I enjoyed uh, Kevin trying to make save because there was a long enough pause where it's like, all right, somebody's somebody's got to help him. Letter grade on Kevin Brown on that call. Eight and a half. Oh, it's an eight. I love Kevin Brown. <laughs> if Kevin Brown can jump in every game, I'm a huge uh, fan of Kevin Brown jumping in. We're in the Kevin Brown business just like the Bucks were in the moving business that day. So overall, uh, what do you give Robert Harper for his two games? He came out with me before. Uh, the broadcast on Saturday, and he was like, well, what do you think of that last broadcast? And I was thinking, like, B-plus. And I was like, you know, for having 36 hours getting thrown into it, I wholeheartedly agree. I thought you did a really solid job. And we didn't talk after this past one. Um, I think listening to the highlights, I actually enjoyed game one more than game two, but highlights are not representative of an entire broadcast. Correct. I obviously was on ESPN Plus, so I didn't get to hear the entire broadcast. You did get to hear the entire yeah, broadcast. Yeah. So his, his, the nuts and bolts of what he, what he would consider a, a great broadcast would be all the insulary stuff that you don't think about. It's mundane about um, down and distance, personnel, time, score, all that stuff. And I know he was much more comfortable in that, you could tell. Plus, even though he knows all of ETSU players, it's still when you're not setting the scene every single time, like – the more you do it, then the more that that comes natural. So, and having more time to prepare, I thought the the pregame show flew, you know, probably much better this time than last time where he had not ran one and was just trying to figure out the timing and everything there. So, and, and Wiljam was there, you know, to help out this uh, pregame show and the other one that usually helps too. Like when you set up a show and you got more guys to bounce stuff off of. So, I thought B plus was probably solid. Um, and, again, probably if you were judging the second quarter on, you probably gave him an, an A, uh, but just for, you know, just some struggles and learning and doing. Um, and then I thought his, his last game was great. I thought, you know, he, he doesn't quite get to the level me and you do on some things, but that's, you know, every broadcaster's different in their go. But, you know, his delivery is similar than mine on, on most things, so I think most people didn't have to get used to, like, a whole different call of the game. I think a lot of the the calls were, again, on normal plays, this, that, and other. I think there probably wasn't a whole lot of difference to Joe Blow. He'd just tune in every once in a while, like, oh, maybe Jay's got a cold or something. You know, they, maybe the voice was slightly different, but most of the calls I felt like were about the same. So I thought he did a great job. Uh, very well prepared. It's the third time I, he had to fill in that James Madison game. Um, and I know he told me that he, he was much better in these two games than, than that contest. Of course, ETSU got beat by like 50, so that always helps too, right? Good, sure. Because yeah. uh, that's where you need your most filler on the loss than you do a win. So 
certainly there, but I appreciate him filling in. I thought it, I thought it was great. I thought he's probably like most people overcritical of his own work. Well, I hope that he is in a good mood today and makes it to this part after we actually critiqued him for the first ten minutes. So, well done, Robert, and uh, put a smile on after this broadcast. I think uh, I thought he did well. Again, I hope he makes it to this part so he knows that we didn't just crush him for about fifteen minutes and didn't bring it all back. Oh, don't worry, I'll tell him. Okay. <laughs> that we crushed him, not that we talked nice about him. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Shohei Otani has taken MLB by storm this season. He's the first player in MLB history to be selected to the All-Star Game as both a pitcher and a position player. The Brooklyn Nets are whole. They are done. If they were committed, if they put in that work, you'd be in the Eastern Conference right now. The Brooklyn Nets are whole watching a playoff with the rest of us. JaVale McGee has been added to the Team USA roster. Yes, I'll say that again. JaVale McGee. Damari Monsanto announced he would not be returning to the Buccaneers. A 6'6", 225-pound, three-star shooting guard was this year's Southern Conference Freshman of the Year. But Jay is my teammate. He stepped up with the 17 green to our left, the 18th tee, 45 yards away. Jay proceeds hit from the 18th tee to the 17th green and into the 17th bucket. six at halftime came back got it to overtime and they're how about this their 13th kicker in the last like three seasons boom game winner yeah see the other he'll be fired next week the other than the phone and on the show i think it sounded like you said it's my show i'm taking auburn i thought that's what no that is not not. we can pull it up if you want uh, Tennessee over Seattle, you got it. And you also got 250 yards or less allowed for ETSU's defense. What, 179? Is that what yeah, it was? 179. <laughs> Pretty impressive. Um, I had uh, a horrendous prediction that shouldn't even be over yet, but it already is, even though I've only predicted half of the stuff, or half of the stuff has actually happened tonight. The other half would have unfolded. Uh, but I said that two NFL teams that lost week one are going to win by 30 or more, the Packers and the Browns. And the Browns struggled mightily yesterday with the Texans. And they very well may have lost that game if Tyrod Taylor hadn't gotten hurt, but Davis Mills had to come in. And the rest is history. Didn't get that. Um, Auburn, obviously, not going to talk about that at all. Uh, the Bucks, Glory TSU Buccaneers. Seven points or Atta less boy. allowed. I'm on the board this year. I am on the board. You're a genius. It was over coming into today and this week. Three to one. Right? Yeah, yeah. to one. You are three to seven.
Cowboy up and go play ball.